Exploring the intersection of liberty and character. Welcome to the Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed. And welcome to the Reed Hour. This is Lawrence Reed, your host. I'm with the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm broadcasting the Read Hour today, as always, on the Loving Liberty Network. I'm here with my producer, Brian Hyde, and as is our custom, we spend the first uh, 10 or 12 minutes talking about a particular hero. We've got a, one of my favorites today, don't we, Brian? And, and you know, I'm happy that you chose uh, a president or a former president as as your hero, because there aren't a lot of presidents that, that I would consider heroic. George Washington's kind of a given, uh, but then it starts to get a little bit foggy from there. Tell us about Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge. Uh, he certainly is one of my favorites, and I'm proud to say that a little over 20 years ago, I spent an afternoon with his son, uh, John Coolidge, in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, interviewing him. I have many pictures from that experience, and I've always loved uh, Calvin Coolidge uh, because uh, he was a quiet guy. He spoke uh, when spoken to or when he had something to say, and when he spoke, he, it was always uh, worth listening to. He was also... Uh, uh, one of our better presidents in terms of keeping government in its place and doing his job of upholding the Constitution. I know he's regarded as a quiet guy. The, he earned the nickname Silent Cal. But I should point out that's more because of what he was like in uh, social occasions, less for what he was like as an actual president. He still holds the record today for uh, among presidents for holding the most uh, public news conferences. So he talked a lot, uh, just not in social settings. Interesting. And, and I have to ask you, a quiet guy, how does a quiet guy get elected president in the first place? What were what was his background and what led up to him uh, ending up in the White House? He was born in Plymouth Notch, Vermont, uh, a small town not much bigger today than it was uh, when he grew, grew up there. I urge people, if you're ever in New England, to make a, a special trip to Plymouth Notch. There's a great uh, Coolidge Museum there. You can visit the, uh, the local uh, cemetery where the Coolidge family, going back many generations, uh, is buried. Uh, you can visit the house in which he was raised and where he was sworn in at about 1 o'clock in the morning as our 30th president of the United States. He spent his first two decades in that small rural Vermont town of Plymouth uh, before moving to Northampton, Massachusetts to pursue uh, his law career. And uh, before very many years were out, he uh, found himself a member of the Massachusetts House, then the Massachusetts Senate, president of the Senate, and also mayor of Northampton before he was elected governor of the state of Massachusetts. So before he was chosen as Warren Harding's running mate as vice president uh, on the ticket in 1920, he was already uh, quite an accomplished politician in his adopted state of Massachusetts. So when, when he ended up in the White House, um, how did he differ from the most recent occupant? 
Well, uh, of course, his immediate predecessor was Warren Harding, and uh, the two of them were quite similar. Policies were not that much different. But what Calvin Coolidge pursued uh, as president was certainly far removed from two presidents before. Uh, and I'm referring, of course, to Woodrow Wilson. I think uh, Woodrow Wilson, yeah, was arguably maybe our worst president. I mean, he was a, I'd uh, agree. a race, yeah, racist, segregationist. He uh, promised to uh, keep us out of World War One, but then put us in. Uh, he gave us the income tax, the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, the direct election of U.S. senators, or at least was a very important figure in all of those controversies. Uh, when uh, Woodrow Wilson left the White House, uh, the income tax, which was inaugurated while he was president, had already gone to a high of 73 uh, percent. Calvin Coolidge undid a lot of the harm that Woodrow Wilson imposed on the country, including a he gave us a dramatic reduction in income tax rates. He got government off our backs. And instead of uh, spending like a drunken sailor, uh, the federal government, when Coolidge left office in early 1929, its budget was actually smaller than it was when Coolidge assumed office. That's the only time in our American history when that's happened. Safe to say that the economic results were favorable with his policies? Oh. Yeah, they sure were. And yet there were many people who said, oh, if you cut the tax rates, uh, you'll reduce revenue and the budget deficit will reappear. But Calvin Coolidge had a string of surplus budgets. Uh, even with reduced tax rates, the revenue to the federal government jumped by one third over the time uh, that he was president uh, in, in spite of those lower tax rates. In fact, because of those lower tax rates, there was significant economic uh, growth in the 19. 20s. We call that the Roaring Twenties. Some of it was because of what the Federal Reserve was doing, and that I don't regard as very positive. But the tax rate reductions, the reduction in the national debt, uh, Coolidge cut that by a quarter, uh, were all positive for the American economy. And he has, uh, in the 20th century, among all American presidents, the lowest so-called misery index, which is a combination nice. <laughs> of unemployment and inflation. It was uh, barely uh, 4% uh, unemployment and inflation combined under Coolidge, the best record of all presidents of the 20th century. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty solid track record. So why didn't he run for re-election in 1928? Well, a couple of reasons. One, even though he held many offices before in Massachusetts, he never really was the kind of guy who lusted for political office. He, he really saw it as a public service. He devoted many years to it. So he was a little bit tired and ready to, uh, uh, to for a change of life. But more than anything else, uh, something happened in 1924 that weighed heavily on him in his uh, full term uh, of office to which he was elected in that same year. And that was the death of his younger of two sons, oh. uh, Calvin Jr. Uh, Calvin Jr. was playing tennis on the White House ten tennis courts and suffered an abrasion on his heel, which became uh, infected. And, uh, you know, in these days, something like that would be a minor ailment. But in those days, uh, it wasn't always uh, the case. And Calvin Jr. died uh, shortly after that, uh, that injury. And Calvin, uh, the president, uh, made the statement on more than one occasion that the, the wind just went out of his sails. Uh, the fun of the American presidency departed uh, with the loss of his son in 1924. Wow. I, I can't even imagine. Now, the Great Depression. 
Depression kicked off in 1929, and my understanding is progressives like to blame Coolidge, at least in part for that. Is there any truth to, to him you know, helping cause the Great Depression? Well, progressives, you know, uh, blame the wrong people and the wrong things most of the time for anything that goes bad. And they don't like Coolidge to begin with because he was for small government and uh, he didn't uh, ram through all kinds of new bureaucracies and regulations. He was quite the opposite, in fact. Um, And so progressives like to say the Great Depression uh, is a reason for lots more government. And Coolidge is a bad guy because he didn't give that to us. He didn't cause it. If, if, if um, there is one entity that we could sh- could say bears the greatest responsibility for the depression that began in 29, it wasn't the president. It was the Federal Reserve System, Amen. which had been, uh, yeah, I- increasing the money and credit supply, uh, driving interest rates to all-time lows, fostering a, a boom. Uh, the portion of the boom that was uh, promoted by lower tax rates was a good thing, but the part that came because of the easy money policies of the Fed was not sustainable. It was causing distortions that sooner or later would have to be uh, uh, undone. Uh, But then the Federal Reserve compounded it by uh, contracting the money supply. It started that about the time Coolidge left office. So after expanding the money and credit supply and causing that boom, then the Fed from 1929 to 33 slammed on the brakes, uh, contracted the money supply, drove interest rates through the roof, and tipped us into the Great Depression. So it wasn't Coolidge, it was the Fed that did it. And even a past Fed chairman, Mr. Bernanke, uh, just a few years ago, admitted that. He said, yeah, the Fed caused the Great Depression. It wasn't Calvin Coolidge. So what did he do after the presidency? Unfortunately, he didn't live very long after he left office uh, in March of 1929. He died in January of 1933. Wow. Uh, so he didn't live very long. But uh, he uh, wrote a syndicated newspaper column uh, for much of that time. Uh, many residents of Northampton, Massachusetts, where he moved back to, um, uh, talked about seeing him quite often in his boat uh, on the river there. And uh, he led a quiet life, didn't comment much on uh, national policy. He thought the country was uh, 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 ready for somebody else. And although he wasn't real fond of Herbert Hoover, his successor, he kept pretty quiet. And uh, but then tragically died of a heart attack in January of 1933. I'm doing my best not to joke about how that may have been linked to FDR, you know, coming into office. But I'll refrain. All right. FDR had just been elected, and I'm sure Coolidge wasn't very happy. Since he worked so hard to undo what Coolidge had done. Yeah. Fascinating hero, as always, Larry. Thank you uh, very much, Brian. And uh, you can read more about Calvin Coolidge on the FEE website, FEE.org. Welcome back to the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed. Please call me Larry. Our website at the Foundation for Economic Education is fee, dot org. And by the way, I should make mention of the fact that this is my last week as president of FEE after 11 years. I will assume um, the duties as uh, president emeritus beginning next week, and we'll have a new president. That's uh, something that's been in the works for a long time. Doesn't change anything with regard to our program here. But it is a big change uh, for me and for my staff here at, at FEE. 
I have a guest today that I want you folks to know and also to know the website of the organization he comes from. His name is Doug Stewart. He is the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, or LCI. Their website is easy to remember, libertarianchristians.com. That's libertarianchristians.com. I urge you to give it a look. Doug holds a Master of Divinity degree from Biblical Seminary and works as a freelance video producer and graphic designer. Welcome to the Read Hour, Doug. Thank you, Larry. It's a, I'm excited to be here. Hey, we're, it's great to have you, and we share so many uh, ideas and principles uh, together, both uh, you and I, as well as our two respective organizations. Before we talk about the Libertarian Christian Institute, Doug, uh, how about telling us about your personal journey? And I'm thinking in, in terms of your Christian beliefs, your political philosophy, and the intersection of those two. Yeah, well, I grew up in a pretty conservative home. Uh, we were conservative theologically, we were conservative politically, and I pretty much kind of bought into all of that. And then I got to college and, you know, 9-11 happened. And, you know, I had kind of assumed that America was founded as a Christian nation or and, and it had sort of lost its way and we should be a Christian nation. And so, of course, at that time, I was excited that George W. Bush was just, you know, fine Christian man uh, who was now leading us as president. And then 9-11 happened. And it occurred to me pretty quickly that if we were a Christian nation following the words of Jesus to turn the other cheek, there would be a very different foreign policy than the one people were calling for. And I didn't quite see what that could have been, but it started me down this road of, hmm, maybe politics, <laughs> maybe <laughs> politics, maybe I've been thinking about my politics in, in sort of the wrong way. And then, you know, I, I left college and I kept, you know, my theological journey and I started Realizing that, you know, if the gospel was so important to the world, that it, it wasn't really just about individuals and what happens to them after they die. Uh, I don't want to undermine that on the one hand. On the other, it's like, well, are we just here to bide our time? And I started realizing that the gospel had a lot to say about this world and had a lot of a lot of application in in this life. And that, of course, included what do Christians have to say with respect to politics? And so uh, if if the church is transforming the world, then somehow the world must be transformed. And therefore, that somehow leads into politics. The issue that I kind of saw was, while I was sort of, I would say, going a little bit more progressive in my theological leanings, everything that they said was just downright, you know, far left progressive politics in terms of like what they wanted the government to do. And I just felt a little unsettled. I'm like, mm, that doesn't quite seem like the direction I feel comfortable going. And so I decided I would, you know, kind of learn some economics. Well, at the same time I was doing all this, I I was actually a big fan of Glenn Beck. Um, I, much to my wife's chagrin, I loved his sense of humor and uh, I, you know, listened to him a lot. <laughs> and he kept saying that he was a libertarian at heart. Mm -hmm. Now, in retrospect, I, I hope that he's become more libertarian at heart than he seemed to be. But it didn't seem to me that he was very consistent when I started <laughs> discovering what libertarianism was. And he would have Ron Paul on as a guest on his show. And way early on, I thought Ron Paul was crazy. And then when I started realizing I need to learn some economics, well, of course, I turned to some things that Ron Paul recommended that led me to uh, places like the Mises Institute. And it led me to uh, Fee University podcasts that I listened to. This is a, probably a decade, decade and a half ago. And so my 
my journey went into economics, I would actually feel comfortable saying that I feel like the Holy Spirit led me to, you know, Ooh. kind of pause me from becoming too progressive, so to speak, uh, and and say, hey, you need to learn some economics. If you're going to have anything to say about how society should operate, maybe some economics would be would be good. So, uh, you know, people like Bob Murphy, Milton Friedman, the fee stuff, Mises Academy, and then, of course, libertarianchristians.com. Uh, and I became, you know, became friends with Norman from a distance. You know, I'm in Pennsylvania. He's he was in Texas at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I became a then I became a regular contributor. It just seemed to me in you know, thinking back of my, you know, Glenn Beck libertarian at heart sort of mindset, it's like he just wasn't consistent. And I really wanted to find something that felt consistent with the things I thought about with respect to theology and Christian living. And it wow. just felt like libertarianism was that most a consistent expression. You mentioned uh, Ron Paul. I'm happy to say I've known him personally for 35, maybe 40 years. And he served on the board uh, of FEE in the 1980s. And his son, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, is also a good friend. You mentioned that... uh, that 9-11 had uh, such a, a pivotal uh, impact on you, a galvanizing moment that led to uh, a shift in your political thinking. I'm curious uh, if you could uh, explain for us what at that time you said that uh, it, it changed your ideas on foreign policy. Was was it foreign policy that preceded 9-11 that you became uh, most critical of or was it the response of President Bush to it or was it both? Well, I think it was in that first week, something didn't sit right with me with this whole, like, we will retaliate and we will, you know, bring these people to justice. Now, I'm not against justice. And, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but Ron Paul apparently uh, proposed a uh, a solution for getting justice that did not require intervention. But here's here's what I was more precisely thinking was if if George W. Bush was a Christian, he would get in front of the camera and say, we're a Christian nation and we are going to forgive our enemies and we are going to pray for them because they want to persecute us and we are not going to stoop to their level and become terrorists ourselves or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, now that I think about it, looking back, I'm like, I'm actually surprised I thought of that back then because I was pretty steeped to conservatism and was pretty, you know, pro-military in that in that sort of sense. That would have been a tough pill for many Americans to swallow at the time. They wanted uh, they wanted to go after the perpetrators for sure. Yeah. Well, I didn't tell anybody about my thoughts until later, so I didn't get in any trouble with any of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell us about uh, the Libertarian Christian Institute. Uh, Brian's giving me the two-minute warning, so maybe we can only uh, begin that discussion and then we'll resume after the break. What is yeah. the Libertarian Christian Institute's mission and what does it do? Yeah, so our mission is to equip Christians to make the Christian case for a free society. Uh, it feels feels sort of a niche in the liberty movement because it reaches out to those who are Christians with a message of liberty rather than just the general message of liberty uh, and, a, and sort of a rhetorical and ar- argument for why should we we should have a free society? A pro argument for or a pro capitalist argument. Uh, we do that from a Christian perspective. It was the the website libertarianchristians.com sort of predates LCI, and it was founded back in 2008 by Norman Horn. Um, it was his way to express thoughts about liberty from a Christian perspective, and it just the the movement kind of grew. He got some he got a post in the Washington Post, and uh, then we had some conferences, and it was time to become a an institute, and so we became LCI uh, about. Four years ago in 2015. 
Ah, fantastic. I uh, know Norman Horn, and he invited me once to give a talk at uh, uh, a conference he had in Texas. I can't remember what uh, city, but I remember thinking, wow, where has this organization been? We've needed something like this for a long, long Mm. time. So I really uh, uh, celebrate the fact that LCI exists and it's growing and uh, serving uh, a real need out there and filling a niche. After the break here in a I'm sorry, uh, we, we got a few seconds before the break. Uh, Doug, if you want to add something. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of resources uh, on our website, and we have, we'll have we we'll talk here in a few minutes about some of the different aspects of our platform and what we how we want to communicate, how we want to equip the church to communicate that message. Okay, we'll be back with Doug Stewart from the Libertarian Christian Institute after this break. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to the Read Hour. This is Lawrence Reed, your host, and my guest today is Doug Stewart. He's the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, LCI. Their website is libertarianchristians.com. And we've been talking about the Institute and its work. We just started that part of our discussion uh, before the break. Doug, why don't you pick up where where we uh, left off and tell us more about LCI, its mission, and what it does. Yeah, I mean, we exist to make the Christian case for a free society and give the church content that to proclaim that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. As I mentioned before the break, it was something of me that I wanted my faith and my politics to be consistent in a number of ways. And one of those ways was to become a Christian libertarian uh, or libertarian Christian. I kind of use those interchangeably. So we want to persuade Christians that our faith inclines us toward principles of individual liberty and free markets. And that, would be, at, that would be the big overall. If you look at the words of uh, uh, Jesus themselves, you, you'll never find a moment where he says anything that would endorse the initiation of force against another person. Yeah. In fact, the kingdom of God grows like a mustard seed. It doesn't get plowed under by violence and it doesn't like you you can't make something grow through violence. And um, yeah, I mean, that's a really important aspect to understand that Jesus never endorsed violence in any way. Um, And so, you know, if we kind of follow that ethic, uh, we realize that we can't also then outsource the violent coercion to another institution. Right. Now, the, uh, how does the Libertarian Christian Institute do its work? Do you hold seminars? Uh, of course, you have a very robust website. Uh, maybe maybe some other things you, you could tell us about. Yeah, we have several major parts to uh, our platform, major pillars to our platform. We actually have a podcast. We are at over 100 episodes. We we hit 100 episodes at the beginning of, of 2019 here, and uh, we do a weekly podcast that comes out every every Monday morning. Um, and so we have a, you know a lot of guests on there. We've had Tom Woods, Larry. You've been on. 
people like Deirdre McCluskey, Mike Munger, Russ Roberts, Jason Brennan. Uh, we've even had Sean Malone from Fee to talk about media. We talk about a lot of things on our podcast. That's a, probably one of the most major ongoing things that we do. Another thing that we have is we have a, actually have an academic journal called the Christian Libertarian Review, and we're about to release volume two of that. And uh, that actually has its own website, although you can get to it from our website. It's uh, the uh, Christian Libertarian Review dot com. And uh, so we have those. We also have our ongoing blog where we have articles and commentary on uh, current events. Uh, we, we try to keep our commentary evergreen so that it doesn't matter when you stumble across our website. Uh, it's not going to feel like you're, you're reading an article from 2008 because we want everything to be relevant uh, a decade later. So we do, we do have a lot of content there. We try to get a couple articles out per week uh, on that. We do have, we have done seminars in the past. Uh, we've, we've had the, we've had the opportunity to figure out uh, how do we bring people from all over the country into one area? And the problem there, of course, is, you know, you have to plan something big for people to want to come to it. And so we're kind of figuring out what we want to do in the future for things like conferences and where we can be. And so um, we we might we might be doing more of those in the future. But we did actually have a couple uh, in the past uh, where I think you were you were at one of them. And I, we met there, uh, I think, for the very first time. Yeah, I think that was in Austin, if I remember correctly. Or... That's exactly where it was. Ah, okay. Uh, you have a project in the works called, uh, oh, it escapes me, called to, Call to yeah. Freedom, right? Yeah. Yeah, maybe you could tell us about that uh, before the break. Yeah, sure. So Call to Freedom was a book published about two years ago, and it was written by a group of six uh, young libertarians, and it was edited by Elise Daniel, and the foreword was written by Norman Horn, and it was published under Whip and Stock, and it's a little over 120 pages, I believe, if I recall correctly, and one of the things that LCI had the opportunity to do was acquire the copyright to produce the audiobook, and Ooh. so we are just about wrapping up the final quality control on the audiobook and it'll be released probably within the next month and we are really excited about that because we know we have a good podcast fit listener base and we also want people to be able to listen to audiobook content and so call to freedom uh was written like i said from by six different individuals uh it's probably it's one of those books that i i delayed reading because i thought i knew what was in it and then i read it and i'm like oh my goodness i'm not as <laughs> I, I i have way more to learn about being a christian libertarian than i thought <laughs> and uh you know for any anybody out there who is maybe not you know totally sold on libertarianism uh, from a Christian view. Uh, this one might might tip you over the fence and say, ah, yes, it can work. You can be a Christian and a libertarian. Uh, and it, so they they even discuss at length uh, certain uh, biblical passages like Romans thirteen, where you know everybody brings up what what about Romans thirteen? That's like the Christian version of what what about the roads for for yeah. the broader libertarian? It's like <laughs> well, what about Romans thirteen? And so uh, they. They tackle that as well, and uh, also tackle a lot of objections. It's a it's a really solid book. The audiobook uh, clocks in around six and a half hours. Oh wow! One of the uh, authors, as I recall, of Call to Freedom is uh, Jason Huey, right? Yes, that's correct. Jason. Yeah, uh, he, he wrote the, the longest chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, a great guy. He was uh, an intern uh, one summer here at Fee, I think about 2012, maybe. Uh, good guy, and uh, so I hardly recommend that book. I assume people can access it through your website or maybe even buy a hard copy uh, online. 
Yeah, so you can buy a copy of the paperback on Amazon, of course. But if you go to calledtofreedombook.com, that's calledtofreedombook.com, you will see our landing page. You'll be able to sign up uh, for our newsletter. And, of course, we're excited to tell everybody once it's out. And so, therefore, you'll you'll also get that uh, alert that Call to Freedom audiobook is available for download. Uh, it will become available on Audible, and I believe we're also going to sell it directly from our site. Oh, that's great. Now, you have written yourself uh, quite a lot for the LibertarianChristians.com uh, website. Uh, what have you got in the works in the next uh, few weeks that we should be looking for? Yeah, well, I, I don't have any articles I'm working on, but I do have one. I know we want to talk about democratic socialism. There's there's a series of articles that's going to come out on democratic socialism by one of our writers, Jamin Hubner, and I've just reviewed them all uh, myself, you know, to kind of prepare them for, for posting. And uh, they're just phenomenal. Um, they are they really take the, the issue seriously. It doesn't just write off people's claims. I mean, I tend to have somewhat of a... Uh, I don't know, blithe attitude about democratic socialism. I roll my eyes a lot when I see people make such arguments. Um, but Jamin, you know, he took it seriously and said, well, wait, what about this? And maybe maybe we should reconsider this a little bit. Um, and But then, of course, he takes on a little bit more critical approach uh, to it. So there's a series of articles coming out on that. Oh, fantastic. When will they begin? Uh, I don't have those planned, but probably later this week, if not early next week. Hey, fantastic. Uh, this is very timely, given the fact that uh, it seems like half the field of presidential candidates on the Democratic side uh, have openly endorsed uh, one version of Democratic socialism or another. Yeah. And so it promises to be a, a big issue over the next year and a half before the uh, November 2020 presidential election. Yeah, it is a pretty important issue. And I think, believe it or not, unwittingly, I think Republicans are going to end up embracing elements of it as well, because they eventually end up endorsing some sort of socialism in some fashion. Uh, so, you know, they're very overt about it on the Democratic Party. So uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at least you know what they're about. Yeah. Yeah. It's so sad that uh, quite often the best that uh, some Republicans can do is to offer socialism light, you know, yeah. instead of actually opposing socialism at its core. And on principle, they say, well, if you put us in charge, we'll we'll do something similar, uh, but we'll just do it uh, somehow more efficiently or a little less of it. But they uh, yeah. undermine the basic uh, premise for liberty when they buy into the democratic socialist uh, agenda. Yeah. And what's most annoying about that to me is that they they give lip service to liberty and individualism and they just they just undermine it through their actual actions. Yeah. Yeah. You look at look at spending, just spending alone. <laughs> Uh, you'd think that when Republicans control uh, at least one of the two houses and the presidency, if not all three, that we get some restraint in government spending. But uh, it seems like it just continues to soar no matter which party uh, is in, con in control. Yeah, I mean, it's been several decades that I've been paying attention to politics more closely, and there are several issues that they seem to be about, but don't really seem to actually do anything about. Yeah. Well, Doug, we've got about a minute left. And when we come back after the break, uh, I certainly want to return to this issue of democratic socialism. It's a big one, and we need to uh, focus on that a bit more. So in the meantime, let me just remind our listeners that we are talking to Doug Stewart. He's the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, LCI. Their website is libertarianchristians.com. He holds a Master of Divinity, Divinity degree from Biblical Seminary and works as a freelance video producer and graphic designer. Well, let me just say that uh, after feeling
lp.org. I hope you, as a listener, will visit uh, libertarianchristians.com, <laughs> and you'll see that we share many, um, many ideas. Certainly, a, a commitment to individual liberty uh, is very strong with both of us. They're doing great work at the Libertarian Christian Institute, and after the break, we'll resume our discussion with Doug Stewart. back on the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed, and I'm talking today to Doug Stewart, CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, whose website is libertarianchristians.com. Doug, before the break, we were talking about uh, a fad, hopefully of simply the moment, not a long-term one, of people embracing the notion of democratic socialism. This is an issue that is near and dear to my heart. As you know, I've written an essay called Was Jesus a Socialist? And I claim he was emphatically not. I assume you would agree with that. Oh, most certainly would agree, Larry. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what's wrong with democratic socialism from your perspective? I mean, democracy, isn't that a good thing? And socialism, isn't that nothing more than helping people, sharing stuff uh, with them and giving them free things? Well, it sounds really good, uh, except when you really start thinking about the mechanisms of it, it requires coercion and violence by an institution that uh, you can't get out of uh, unless you like leave the country or something like that. Uh, so, you know, it's it's pretty unfortunate that there's like all these really good ideals that they want to embody. And I think a lot of Christian progressives will look to the early church, will look to the community that was formed around the Jesus movement in the first century. And they say, ah, see, that's what community should look like. And what they don't realize is what I think, you know, Friedrich Hayek uh, would say, uh, maybe I'm sort of paraphrasing my way of putting it is like, there's a scalability problem and you can't, you know, you can have small communities take on and embody the kind of principles of sharing and giving and cooperating and things like that. But um, that you can't scale that on a major, on a, you can't scale that to something like the federal level of the United States government, uh, because then then you're dealing with now you're getting into what the Bible calls empire. And that that's really a big problem, because that has to deal with the concentration of power into the hands of a few. Yeah. You know, if you just listen carefully to the proposals of Democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they're not uh, special requests or or, uh, uh, helpful advice. I mean, these are proposals time and again down the list that are compulsory, that require the use of force. Uh, It's really uh, mystifying to me uh, how people uh, seem to embrace democratic socialism without understanding that at its core uh, is this involuntary uh, mandated use of, of force and coercion. That's that's the central uh, feature of socialism that differentiates it from, say, capitalism, right? It's, it's the initiation yeah. of force against people. 
Yeah. And I, and I think there's some, so there's a deep problem and I, you know, on my most uncharitable moments about democratic socialism, it's just like, man, they seem oblivious to the mechanism by how their world has gotten richer over the past several decades, or, you know, to kind of fit it into the framework, the last 200 years of progress. And they seem pretty ungrateful about it because all they keep talking about is other people's money. Um, And so all they want to do is, you know, they're like the world's, you know, you and I know this, the, the global poor are getting richer. They're getting richer at a rapid rate. And all the progressives can do is talk about how much they want to take the wealth of those who are enriched first. Mm-hmm. And you and I just know that what's going to happen if if you have free markets and free people, the world will get better. Yeah, you alluded to the fact that they're always talking about money. That is ironic, isn't it? Because that's a criticism that uh, they uh, lob in our direction. Uh, those of us who believe in things like freedom, free markets, capitalism, uh, we're accused of being the uh, the people always focused on green eye shade stuff, you know, the bottom line, uh, money. Mm-hmm. And yet you listen to them and all they talk about is uh, our money that they want to take uh, to give to other people for various things. I mean, who's who's really focused on money here. Yeah. People like you and I, we're talking about compassion, volunteerism, uh, uh, self-help, uh, civil society, people helping people, and yet it's the uh, socialists who are always talking about the money they want to take and redistribute. <laughs> and it's always other people's money. It's not their own. I, I always tell them, hey, you know what? You can give more to the Treasury if you want to. If you think the debt is such a big problem, because they didn't about five years, about three years ago, if you think yeah. the debt, uh, the deficit and the debt are a big problem, then why don't you give a little bit more? You they, know, they, Arthur, don't, they don't have an answer to that. No. And here's something else they don't have an answer to. Arthur Brooks of the American Enterprise Institute authored a book some years ago, uh, zeroing in on uh, who gives. In fact, that's the title, I think, of the book, focusing on uh, where do charitable contributions uh, to noble causes tend to come from? And you'd think that, that socialists would be big givers uh, to all kinds of humanitarian endeavors. But quite the opposite is the case. It's uh, libertarians. It's conservatives. It's people who believe in freedom who take the responsibility more than anybody else to personally support uh, worthy causes, not the socialists who are always the, the bleeding heart types, but don't put their own money where their mouth is. Yeah, yeah. well, that's definitely a that's definitely a statistic that comes out. I think one thing that I would add about that is that it's not an either or that you have government coercion or voluntary charity to uh, resolve the needs of people who have less that resolve the real needs that we see out there in society. Uh, because there, there is a third option and that is that wealth, wealth expansion. And that is only done through free markets. You know, you and I don't, we, we don't subscribe to a fixed pie fallacy where there's only X amount of wealth out there. Uh, you and I know that trade creates wealth and as, if we keep trading more, and, and by that I don't mean some sort of Keynesian consumption idea, but if if we enable trade and we allow people to innovate and create better and more efficient things, uh, we will we will expand that pie. And if, if there there is no pie, but we will we will expand what's there. Yeah. And it's not something that you know people like progressives kind of see. They see them they see things as a fixed pie, and yeah. so we we know the recipe for for success in the world in which everybody has what they need, which is, you know, a lot of Christian 
socialists, progressive uh, Christians will will want things like health care for all and a fair wage, a minimum income, fair treatment, things like that. And it's like, you know what? Compared to where we came from before capitalism, we're, we're well on our way there. And we didn't need any of your programs to make us do it. <laughs> I've always thought that one of the strongest cases for freedom and free markets is the fact that those things uh, are, are natural. Uh, they, they are what happens when you leave people alone, whereas socialism is a kind of human contrivance that varies from one uh, uh, schemer or dreamer uh, to another. They're always thinking up uh, some kind of Rube Goldberg contraption to seize wealth as if it's just there for the taking and then redistribute it according to the way they think uh, it should be given out. Uh, it's artificial. It's it's unnatural. It's not what happens when you leave people alone. It's what happens when you put, put people in positions where they have the power, the political power, to push others around. Yeah, and I think that one of the legitimate concerns I think progressives might have is that you don't want people to have concentrated power. But the only thing that they focus on are people like Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Tim Cook or whomever it might be that has so much money that they just, you know, they're like, oh, I want their money. Um, and so <laughs> they, that's what they focus on. And they don't realize that it's the same. Like this is what libertarians are saying about about the state is yeah. that you have you're wanting to enable uh, an institution that has has a monopoly of over violence in a given you know jurisdiction you want to give them the power to break up what you think is a bad monopoly or who you think has too much money i'm like you're just enabling the same thing and yeah. so you know I, I i can understand the concern of you know somebody having so much economic power the the dish, the, the issue for me is that it's not the, the kind of power that is destructive uh jeff bezos is not bombing countries uh he's not running as far as i know he's not running a deficit to fund things that are that are immoral and unethical uh, but they you know progressives and democratic socialists they want the state to be the monopoly that that amazon is i think they're just jealous they just want to have the power that they think amazon has or yeah, something like that they're jealous of the very people who create the wealth that they themselves in most cases don't know how to create and simply have uh, fanciful schemes to, to redistribute if i didn't like jeff bezos i just wouldn't read the washington post and i wouldn't buy from amazon and uh, end of story he has no, yeah. no power over me or anybody else uh, in that sense well um doug we're down to about a minute or so is there one last thing you would like our listeners to know about libertarian uh Christians.com or the Libertarian Christian Institute? The I, I think the thing that everyone would love to know about LCI is that we work very hard to produce materials that will help Christians communicate the message of liberty. And what, what we want to do is make sure that they feel comfortable in their families, their churches, small groups, any kind of environment where the Christians they're around might be somewhat either hostile or even just like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe you believe that. Uh, we, we don't we want them to be able to communicate and reach out to to the church. So. Uh, LCI is there. That's that's why we exist. You can read our core values on our website, the libertarianchristians.com slash mission, and you can see our mission and core values. We have a, a list of five things that uh, we believe every Christian libertarian ought to be able to embrace. 
That's great, Doug. And uh, to all that you've said, I uh, want to uh, mention to our listeners that if you're interested in reading that essay I alluded to earlier called Was Jesus a Socialist? You can find that on our website at fee.org, F-E-E.org. We've been talking to Doug Stewart, the CEO of the Libertarian Christian Institute, whose website, again, is libertarianchristians.com. Doug, it's been great to have you as my guest today. I appreciate the time and the wisdom you've offered us, and best wishes for continued success at the Institute. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, Larry. My pleasure. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.